This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to the Trumpet's first weekly review of all the important news in 2023. I'm Joel Hilliker, and with me is our panel here in the studio. We have Jeremiah Jacques. Hello there. And Andrew Miller. Hello. From our office in Britain, we have Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And Mihailo Zekic. Hello. We begin in Ukraine, in territory now claimed by Russia, where a Russian military base was destroyed in the deadliest attack on Russian forces since the war began last February. To learn about this, we'll go to Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, it has been just a remarkably rough start to the year for Russia in its uh, war on Ukraine. First of all, just as the calendar was turning over to January 1st, and actually just as President Vladimir Putin was delivering a New Year's speech, one of Russia's main bases in Makivka was hit by a Ukrainian HIMARS attack. The, uh, the most credible reports say that 400 Russians were killed and another 300 were wounded in this massive attack. Apparently, it was a lot deadlier than it otherwise would have been because Russia had its soldiers sleeping right on top of an ammunition storage depot. So that's a, like a cardinal sin of logistics. Um, and that made the whole situation far more combustible and deadly than it otherwise would have been. Um, now, Russia says that it was only around 90 soldiers that were killed. But even that very conservative and unlikely number would make this, <clears throat> that would still make this Russia's greatest number of casualties in a single attack since the start of the war. Uh, so that was on Sunday. And then just two days later, Ukraine hit one of Russia's main bases in Zaporizhia. Casualty figures for that one have not yet been published, but it is, uh, we, we know from the photos that it utterly demolished the buildings that Russia was using. So these are, you know, these are major attacks and they have helped Russia to cross a grim milestone just in the last few days with uh, more than 110,000 soldiers now killed. And then at the same time, there was also news from the U.S. this week that a new shipment of weapons is on the way to, to Ukraine, which will include for the first time uh, Patriot missile batteries and also Bradley infantry fighting vehicles. These M2 Bradleys are, you know, top of the line armored fighting vehicles. They're equipped with javelins and much more. And and then of course the the Patriot systems are are real game changers with a greater range than other systems that Ukraine has had. So all of this will significantly increase Ukraine's combat effectiveness. And then Germany this week also approved a major batch of military to Ukraine, including martyr tanks and a Patriot air defense battery. Some of this German kit already arrived yesterday, and that was the same day that France announced that it'll finally be sending its AMX-10 RC tanks to Ukraine. It's an undisclosed number of these tanks, but they could, they could begin arriving there as early as this month. So... You know, Russia just keeps on hoping that the West will tire of mm. supporting Ukraine and stop sending all these weapons. But it looks like that's not going to happen anytime soon. And in fact, the West is shifting to a policy of giving heavier and more significant weaponry to Ukraine. So, yeah, the situation, I think, is getting just more and more desperate for Putin and his forces. How has Vladimir Putin responded 
Yes. Well, in the face of all this, you know, these multiplying losses and news of increasing support from NATO nations, he has been talking more and more about the need for some kind of a settlement to be reached, some kind of a, a, a truce. So yesterday he said that Russia wants to open a dialogue with Ukraine, but he said what we already knew, which is that Ukraine must take what he called new territorial realities into account during such talks. So he's affirming that Russia will not leave Ukraine and that it has no intention of surrendering the parts of it that it's already occupying. And you know, on one hand, this doesn't seem entirely unreasonable. Russia is occupying Crimea and most of the people there are ethnically Russian. And from what we can tell, the majority of them are not opposed to being part of Russia. Um, and then in the Eastern provinces, there's also an argument that could, could be made on ethnic grounds for redrawing the border to give parts of those you know areas to Russia. So it, it may not sound altogether unreasonable, but the trouble is that we know from the way the invasion started this year, with soldiers heading straight into Kyiv and other central and western Ukrainian cities. Um, and we know from Putin's propaganda about Ukraine not having any right to even exist as a separate nation. From all that, we know that whatever Putin says during this present time of desperation, his goal is the whole nation. And if he is given a peace deal right now, it's you know, it's very evident that he would use that time to just regroup and rebuild his depleted forces mm. and then to soon attack again when he's no longer on the back foot. So, you know, that that's clear to most everyone, including the Ukrainian authorities. And Ukraine has um, refused Putin's calls for talks. They believe that the only hope they have of driving Russia out is to continue to apply pressure without interruption, especially now that they've already pushed Russia back so far and they kind of have it on the back foot. So there will be no dialogue opened. You know, there are times when watching world events in light of biblical prophecy where what you see seems contrary to what you would expect based on the prophecies. And this is this is one that Gerald Flurry has talked quite a lot about Russia having uh, and Vladimir Putin uh, having this aggressive policy that could really drive the world toward a, a more intense war posture, exactly as we're seeing. But I think the expectation, just looking at it prophetically, was that Putin would have had more initial success. But there are so many times where what the prophecy says doesn't change it 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 stands and you have to kind of hold on to that even in light of what looks like evidence to the contrary uh, how do you view this uh, in light of this ongoing challenges that uh, that putin is facing here in light of the prophecies that we know uh, are going to unfold yeah i think that's a great point you know I, I think it has been encouraging to see ukraine defend itself so formidably against the russians and uh, and we, we do know that the whole thing is prompting a lot of Russians to leave the nation, especially men of military age. And a lot of people are even calling for Putin to be replaced. Um, and so you're, you're right, like the facts on the ground, in some ways you say, how is this leading to those prophetic mm -hmm. outcomes that we're expecting? But we have to remember that Putin has endured all kinds of turmoil and challenges for 23 years at the helm of Russia. And there are still plenty of tactics and strategies that could turn things around for Russia. We could see Putin, 
convince China to get more on board. You know, up until this point, China has mostly just provided indirect support for Russia, political support and economic support, diplomatic also, I guess you could say. But if China got more militarily involved, that could very quickly turn the tides. There's also the chance that Putin could, you know, take the gloves off and start to use some of his WMDs chemical weapons, even nuclear weapons. He has no shortage of either, and and those could be big game changers. And then what I think is probably most likely is that we could see Putin declare full-scale war. Up until now, he has just called this a limited military operation, and he's kind of operated within the confines of that. Um, and he's only declared a partial mobilization. But an official declaration would authorize a national draft. You, you could be seeing potentially millions of Russian, you know, additional Russian troops deployed. And it would also direct more uh, Russian industry toward the war effort. So there are, there are a lot of cards that Putin could still play that, you know, could turn this around and, and change what, what you're right. You know, we, we all expected him to have a quick victory. Here we are close to a 11 months, I think it is on, um, but it could change quickly. Where would you send people to uh, just to look at the, the prophecies that inform what we expect to happen over there? I would uh, recommend Mr. Fleury's booklet. It's called The Prophesied Prince of Russia. This booklet is all about uh, a prophecy in Ezekiel 38 which Mr. Fleury says shows that there will be an end-time Asian alliance led by a specific Russian ruler. And Mr. Fleury has identified Vladimir Putin as that ruler who will be at the head, not just of Russia, but this whole you know, Asian alliance. And so this uh, booklet really takes a deep dive into the, the Ezekiel 38 chapter and several other related chapters. And it shows why we need to just be carefully watching Putin and why we should not expect Russia to lose. Thank you very much, Mr. Jacques. Now to Israel, where the new government of Benjamin Netanyahu is now at work. The new minister of national security made a visit that has the Arab world furious. To learn about what they're so upset about, we'll turn to Mihailo Zekic. So with anything in the Middle East, uh, especially regarding so-called disputed areas like Jerusalem, any move by governments, by interested parties, usually ends up triggering an uproar. And in this week, there were some events on the Temple Mount that were no exception. On January 3rd, Mar Ben-Gavir, Israel's new national security minister under Prime Minister Netanyahu's new government, visited the Temple Mount. Now, the new government has only been in power since last week, as we covered last week on this program. And Itamar Ben-Gavir belongs to a new coalition partner of Netanyahu's, one's, one that is further to the right than uh, some of the traditional Israeli right parties. And part of his uh, new program into the government is to show uh, support for Israel's claim on East Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. And so he did that through this past Tuesday visiting it. That's all he did. He didn't go and give a speech in front of the Al-Aqsa Mosque. He didn't visit any of the mosques. He didn't encourage masses of supporters to come with him and storm up. He just went up in the early hours of the morning with uh, some security entourage, stayed for about 13 minutes, and left. You would think that wouldn't be too controversial. Jews are allowed to go up into the Temple Mount normally, and even other government officials have done this kind of thing before. The last high-ranking one was in 2017. But 
predictably, the Arab world went ballistic when uh, news of this came out. Uh, ben Gavir announced that he was gonna, going to do this on Sunday. Um, in between Sunday and Tuesday, Hamas and Hezbollah claimed that a visit would uh, trigger an eruption of violence in the Middle East. No surprise there. But after the visit, um, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Egypt, and Jordan, these four countries, three out of the four of them have official relations with Israel, and they're not considered the most extreme players in the Arab world. They all accused uh, Ben Gavir of, quote, storming the Temple Mount and uh, uh, undermining the status quo of the religious sites in the area and uh, that this was going to throw uh, uh, the entire diplomatic uh, process in the Middle East into chaos. Now, nobody's violating the status quo here. The status quo is an unofficial set of uh, rules and guidelines that govern how affairs in the Temple Mount are managed. Um, the Islamic Waqf and Islamic uh, body controls uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock and the Muslim holy sites. Jews are allowed to visit but not allowed to pray. Um, other little laws like that, you're not allowed to fly flags of any kind on the Temple Mount. And again, according to the status quo, Jews are allowed to visit. Itamar Ben-Gavir visited. He visited before this many times uh, on the Temple Mount before he was a government minister. Nobody gave a hoo-ha about that then. But now that uh, he represents the Israeli government and one that wants to take a stronger foot footing against radical Islamist uh, extremism, all of a sudden people have a problem with it. And so while you might see in some of the mainstream media that – Itamar Ben-Gavir and the new government, they're exacerbating tensions, they're uh, disrupting the status quo. Contrary to some of the vitriol from some of the Arab governments, nothing like that is happening at all. What what has been the uh, international response to this situation? It seems like the there was uh, there's quite a lot of opposition to uh, Benjamin Netanyahu to begin with, and a lot of people looking for any pretense to uh, attack this new conservative government? Ooh, it's been a firestorm from the UN, the capitals of the world's major powers, again, the Arab world, everywhere. It's not surprising in one sense. Um, again, Israel has, has a bit of a reputation of being the international community's favorite punching bag. But considering, again, how relatively innocuous this was and the amount of reaction or the reactions that everybody is getting from this, in a sense, that is surprising. The UAE, again, a little bit of context, a few years back, uh, the UAE and Israel signed a normalization agreement to open up uh, diplomatic relations. Back then, Israel was in charge, uh, was under Benjamin Netanyahu. Back then, Israel controlled the Temple Mount. They didn't give any indication that it was going to let go of the Temple Mount. The UAE was fine with doing business with, with Israel then. But this uh, this event, this visit by Ben Gavir, caused the UAE, on behest of some other Arab governments, to actually call an emergency meeting of the United Nations Security Council, um, which also got the support of China. The meeting uh, uh, convened yesterday, where basically everybody, including the United States, Russia, Great Britain, France, they all condemned what what happened on Tuesday. Looks like nothing of any substance came out of the meeting, but um, even the United States, which normally is Israel's best ally in in the United Nations supporting Israel, and their UN Security Council veto certainly helps with that. 
they turned on Israel too. Ned Price, a spokesperson for the State Department, said, quote, we oppose any unilateral actions that undercut the historic status quo. They are unacceptable. The president, uh, speaking of Biden, has previously underscored the need to preserve the historic status quo at Haram al-Sharif slash Temple Mount, as has the secretary. That is a message we will continue to enforce, end quote. And so you see here, the United States State Department, I mean, they've been involved in the Israeli peace process basically from the start. They know very well that what Ben Gavir did is not undermining the status quo at all. A 13-minute visit without any speech or anything like that. And they're parroting the same claims that the Arabs are making. Robert Wood, uh, the UN ambassador, or the the states' ambassador to the UN, said basically the same thing. Uh, again, talking about unilateral actions, he, he said, uh, and how Israel's exacerbating tensions are undermining the viability of a two-state solution. Now, that's the key there when uh, Mr. Wood talked about a two-state solution. Now, what Ben Gavir did doesn't undermine the status quo. And it doesn't undermine a two-state solution either. That's the idea, as many people are aware, of dividing uh, the Palestinian territories into an independent state and Israel living side by side. But what the Palestinians are most concerned about is getting control of East Jerusalem, the part of the city that includes the Temple Mount, includes a, a lot of other religious sites. And technically speaking, even going back to the Oslo Accords, the idea of Jerusalem being an integral part of the two-state solution is not technically there. The Israelis and the Palestinians in previous negotiations agreed that Jerusalem will be negotiated separately from the idea of an independent Palestinian state itself. But you see here, America and the other great powers through Great Britain and France said s similar things. They're saying that East Jerusalem belongs as a part of the two-state solution and the Israeli government showing any sign of sovereignty there, even if it's part of the established status quo is undermining that and that needs to be condemned so in other words the u.s and the rest of the great powers and the rest of the world really are trying to force israel's hand in giving up east jerusalem even though technically speaking east jerusalem is a separate issue from the two-state solution in itself so when you look at what the actions of the united states administ uh, administration of washington's doing what everyone else is doing really they're the ones having or giving unilateral acts that are undermining the status quo per se they're the ones determining what the status quo should be they're the ones moving the goalposts and basically forcing the israelis to play keep up and they don't like what ben gavir is doing they don't like what benjamin netanyahu is doing and how they're making it public that east jerusalem's not going east jerusalem of course is the center of uh, jewish civilization it's home to judaism's holiest site that doesn't seem to matter to the international community. They're using this um, move by Ben Gavir as an opportunity of theirs to try and force Israel's hand to give up East Jerusalem. It really is remarkable just how everything that happens in Jerusalem uh, has such far-reaching ramifications. Every gesture, every you know, a visit from a from an Israeli minister, uh, and the the irrational reaction of the Arab world, the fact that it's supported as it as it is by the international community, really does show uh, how much danger the Jews are in. 
as they try to navigate these waters. And looking at this from the standpoint of Bible prophecy, we know that Jerusalem is going to be a touchpoint of end-time events. Gerald Flurry has drawn a lot of attention to that. We have his booklet, uh, Jerusalem in Prophecy, that describes that. We also have, he's written the booklet, uh, The Eternal Has Chosen Jerusalem, that shows just how important that city is to uh, end-time events. And it will be a conflagration within Jerusalem that begins so many of those uh, events that we uh, expect right at the very end of this age. So we will uh, keep our eyes on that as uh, Netanyahu's government proceeds. That is is definitely, there's a lot of potential for friction to continue to increase in that part of the world. We thank you for bringing that to us, Mr. Zekic. Pope Benedict, the man who resigned from the papacy back in 2013, died this week. For this story, we'll go to Richard Palmer. Yes, Pope Benedict XVI died on December 31st at 95 years old. We also then went on to have his funeral, which was the first funeral in modern times where you've had a pope presiding at the funeral of uh, another pope because uh, Benedict, of course, made history by resigning in 2013 rather than uh, serving on out his career until he died, the first pope since Gregory XII uh, in 1415 to do that. And, uh, you know, that, well, then that funeral that was also held this week, that was on January 5th. That was a, a pretty big media event, not as big as John Paul II, uh, both because I think John Paul II was a more charismatic individual. And also, you know, obviously he was the sitting Pope, uh, when he died. I think it's a bit different when you have somebody who stepped down and then died, but you had about 50, 50,000 gather in St. Peter's square to, to watch that uh, ceremony. The fact that uh, he's been out of office for about a decade now, it, you have kind of lost sight of him. Um, what Talk about his, uh, his legacy, the, the role that he played in the church and what he represented within the Catholic Church. Yeah, that's an interesting question, given that his successor has gone in the opposite direction to a lot of, uh, a lot of his legacy. I think... Uh, one thing will be his push for union with these other different uh, splinters from the Catholic Church. I think most especially union with the Church of England. You remember he set up the traditional Anglican community. He made it very easy for Anglicans upset at the liberal direction of their church or Episcopalians uh, to come into the Catholic Church, getting rid of some of the roadblocks, like, for example, the Catholic Church not allowing married priests while there was a was a way for them to come into the Catholic Church and still have married priests. And, and he really cleared that way. And so I think it's fascinating that uh, at his funeral, you had people like Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, you know, the most senior prelate in the Anglican Communion, uh, saying Pope Benedict was one of the greatest theologians of his age, committing committed to the faith of the church and stalwart in his defense. You had King Charles III there, the head of the Church of England, uh, really praising him and um, talking especially about this efforts at unity. So I think that will definitely be one of the, uh, the long-lasting implications of his time in office. Uh, maybe even stepping down will be one of the uh, the precedents that um, that he sets. There's been quite a bit of speculation as well that now that he stepped down, that maybe Pope Francis felt like two ex-popes was a bit much. Uh, his health is obviously failing. He has had said he would step down if uh, his health 
became worse. Uh, maybe we could see him stepping down in the near future. Uh, and then I think also just his his Ravensburg speech, Pope Frank Benedict's Ravensburg speech, where he talked about uh, this really lit flames of uh, division between uh, the between Christians and Muslims or, or highlighted some of those. Uh, it was a very controversial speech at the time where he was reading a quote that was very critical of Muhammad. Uh, you wonder with all the tensions that we typically talk about between uh, Islam and, and, and Europe, whether that's a, a legacy that you could see uh, really uh, can, continuing with a future pope. We we have an article on thetrumpet.com that just talks about the uh, outpouring of support from around the world uh, for this man and how that may point to prophecies of the Catholic Church unifying with uh, the the Protestant world. Talk about that prophecy. Yeah, this is uh, one of the key, key prophecies that we watch where uh, the Bible talks about this church that says, well, I'm not going to suffer the loss of children. Those, those churches that have gone out from me, that have, that have left, I'm going to gather them back in. And Mr. Armstrong was writing about this prophecy even before that, the Vatican II Synod. Uh, some of these big conferences that the Catholic Church has had to try and bring in these daughter churches. Uh, and it really is an effort that we've seen uh, really, really accelerate. We've seen Pope Francis do a lot with this, with bringing in the Orthodox Church and drawing closer to them. Uh, like we mentioned, we're seeing Pope Fran uh, we saw Pope Benedict and the Anglicans and, and some others. Uh, so that's a that's a core prophecy that we watch. And then we have our book of the Holy Roman Empire in prophecy that just really shows you the the shape of things to come and how really the work of Pope. It, it, there's a section, there's a chapter in there. It goes through the life of Pope Benedict. It goes through even the life of Pope Francis and shows some of these things that they've done to push the Catholic Church in the direction that Bible prophecy tells us it's going in. Because even though, yes, these two have done things that have been quite different. Uh, and they've both pushed Bible prophecy forwards in their own way. You look at what Pope Francis has done in terms of uh, really pushing out a very anti-American uh, message, very, say, anti-capitalism, and then he associates America very strongly with capitalism. He's done a lot to try and rally the whole world against America. Uh, and then you kind of put the legacies of all of these different popes together, and you're seeing the Catholic Church very clearly moving in the direction that, that the Bible would tell us that it will move in, uh, in all of these different elements. All right. Thank you for that, Mr. Palmer. Now to America, more Twitter files and more revelations about how federal law agencies used Twitter to push the Russian election meddling hoax. For this story, we'll turn to Andrew Miller. Yeah, the uh, Twitter files just keep coming and coming. I was initially hopeful we'd have a uh... Uh, Elon Musk long promised uh, Twitter files batch on Anthony Fauci, but he he appears to be uh, trolling us for a little while longer on the release of those. But we did get on Tuesday uh, a big release actually tying um, a lot of this corruption in Twitter all the way back to the Russiagate hoax, uh, specifically investigative journalist uh, Matt uh, Taibe published a new thread on Tuesday on how Twitter let the intelligence community in. And it talks about that if you go all the way back to August um, 2017, that would have been the, the first year of the, the Trump administration, uh, Facebook suspended 300 accounts for uh, suspected Russia origins. You remember they keep talking about how Trump had colluded to steal the 
the 2016 election uh, and worked with Russia, and it all turned out to be a big nothing burger. But they, Facebook had a f- had identified 300 accounts with suspected Russian origins, and if you ever, I think I've seen some content from those accounts, and it's all pretty corny. Uh, I don't think I don't think anyone would be too convinced with it. But um, the the government made a big deal out of it, and they um, at first they were mostly focused on Facebook. Uh, they weren't worried too much about Twitter uh, because Twitter did run a routine review of 2,700 suspected ac- accounts and only found about 22 of them that had Russian origins. So very few Russian Twitter accounts. The content on that was not the type of thing that's going to tip an election. Uh, but yeah, Hillary Clinton and uh, and some of her Democratic allies uh, really came down hard on this. Clinton had said at one point, it's time for Twitter to stop dragging its heels and live up to the fact that its platform is being used as a tool of cyber warfare. And so the the government really came down hard on, on Twitter that you need to start censoring Russian disinformation. Uh, I was, there's another deposition I think I've mentioned on this program already. It was with the uh, Attorney General of Missouri with uh, FBI agent Elvis Chan, uh, who wrote his thesis. His thesis was kind of, uh, his master's thesis was titled Fighting Bears and Trolls, uh, basically how to fight disinformation. And he that wasn't actually published till 2021, uh, but he, he goes through a lot of information. There's about 350 pages of information in there about how it was about during the Russiagate hoax, right, what these Twitter files are talking about that the the government really started focusing on Facebook, Google, and Twitter, those big three that like having um having FBI and other government agents liaison with those three groups to make sure that they're fighting Russian disinformation. But like I said, there's not actually much Russian disinformation to fight, like maybe twenty two counts with corny stuff on it. And so that's why you're hearing these things like um Oh, like Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg told Joe Rogan that he said, well, there's going to be some Russian disinformation coming. Watch for it. Uh, and then uh, other Twitter files have showed that they had the same meetings with Twitter saying, hey, there's some Russian disinformation coming. Watch for it. And they, they labeled the Hunter Biden laptop Russian disinformation, which wasn't Russian disinformation. It was his actual laptop. They, they've had pretty much an official investigation into that. Uh, and, and even the big new liberal news networks like the New York Times admit that now. But they use this as an excuse. Like Russian information was kind of like the toe and the foot in the door that they're coming in and saying, like, hey, the uh, Trump was colluding with Russia to steal the 2016 election. Uh, the government has to step in there and make sure that the Russians aren't trying to brainwash the American people when really there was like 22 Russian accounts on Twitter and it, the U.S. government was the main one trying to brainwash the American people where like any story critical of Biden is like Hunter Biden laptop, Russian disinformation, uh, business deals with China, Russian disinformation. You can call anything Russian disinformation uh, and get it censored. To where the, the the Russia the Russia threat is there is there is a, a, what they call a troll farm in Saint Petersburg I think it's called the Internet Research Agency off the top of my head um, where, where the Russians do try to 
come up with things they can put on social media in order to try to like influence nations in their favor. Uh, although there's really been no evidence it's been very successful in the United States. I think it's saw, yeah, a couple Facebook memes that not much, but the much bigger problem here is the government's used this little problem <laughs> as an excuse to come in and impose a big solution right. on the fact that we can censor whatever they want. And now, um, oh, you've got, uh, you've got analysts like, uh, uh, Robert Epstein, uh, who have been talking about Google quite a lot, saying that they're thinking that Google alone may have shifted millions of votes from Trump to Biden. Not stole in that, like, you took a Trump vote and made it a Biden vote, but convinced millions of people to legitimately vote for Biden just to the fact that when they're searching the news, um, the algorithms have been deliberately engineered to make sure that like positive stories about Donald Trump never make first page Google news. Right. And that uh, negative stories about Joe Biden never make first page Google news. And so if you're, unless you're like really digging deep and doing some critical thinking of your own, if you're just like passively browsing the news, like just by osmosis. <laughs> right. You're, sure. You're getting like liberal ideas. Yeah. Tell us, uh, about this this other story briefly if you can uh that uh that there's something like 165 uh intelligence officials employed by google yeah that was actually not even a twitter file that was just uh some sort of anonymous open sourced investigator uh whose twitter handle is name redacted 247 uh i don't know who that is uh but they they had tweeted that there were at least 165 uh, former intelligence agents uh, on the Google payroll, uh, and I think he he broke that down into 27 former uh, Central Intelligence agents, 52 former FBI agents, 30 former National Security agents, uh, 50 uh, former Department of Homeland Security agents and six agents from the Office of the Directors of National Intelligence. Uh, and now I was, <laughs> I believed it when I read that, but I was a little skeptical just because the account was anonymous. But if you go through his Twitter thread, he, he included like the LinkedIn page of all these people. So like you click on, uh, you click on an example like Nick Roseman, who uh, he currently works as Google's senior manager for trust and safety, is former CIA, and uh, and we we didn't need to like wiretap anyone or, uh -huh. or do any James Bond level espionage to find <laughs> that out. You just had to have the time on your hands yeah. to go through the LinkedIn pages of every Google employee and write down which ones actually put former intelligence agents on their resume. We, uh, we have an article in the newest edition of The Trumpet by Stephen Flurry called Dark Secrets Exposed that uh, talks about just all of these revelations of the collusion between and the, uh, the, the pressure that the government has put on these social media companies to do their bidding, where these companies that really have powerful reach into shaping public opinion, as you were saying, uh, the government is directing them to do what they tell them to do, uh, and they're very politically motivated. And so these private companies have been essentially co-opted by uh, federal federal forces. Uh, it's a 
powerful story and the more that inf- the more information that uh, emerges the more uh, the bigger we realized this these developments really are uh, we thank you for bringing that to us mr miller you're listening to trumpet hour coming up north korea pledging to dramatically expand its nuclear weapons arsenal germans demanding their nation's Defense minister resign, economic trouble in Egypt, evidence that Democrats have been using Catholic NGOs to fund illegal immigration, and the Prince Harry saga gets even uglier. We'll be right back. You're listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. North Korea's leader has a New Year's resolution to significantly expand his nation's nuclear arsenal. To learn about this, we'll go back to Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un announced on Sunday that he is planning to greatly expand both North Korea's nuclear arsenal and also um, its collection of intercontinental ballistic missiles used to deliver all of the new warheads that he's planning to build. So North Korea is believed to only have about 40 to 50 viable nuclear warheads at present, but Kim is basically saying that this is just the start of the arsenal that he wants. In a statement about this on Sunday, he said, The currently established situation calls for our country doubling down our efforts to strengthen our military power overwhelmingly, to safeguard our sovereignty, safety, and basic national interest, to cope with the dangerous military moves by the United States and other hostile forces that target us. So, you know, he blames America mostly there and also South Korea, his his longtime arch nemesis. And since the alliance between the U.S. and South Korea has been growing stronger, Kim is just saying that he's intent on increasing his firepower so that he can fight against it and uh, hopefully, in his view, destroy it. How does uh, South Korea feel about this? Yes, well, the South was really rattled by this pledge from from Kim Jong-un. South Korea doesn't have nuclear weapons. And of course, they share one of the world's most dangerous borders with North Korea. It's about 150 miles of border that they share there. So I think that a, a great deal of the world just kind of dismiss, just kind of dismisses these sorts of statements from Kim Jong-un as saber rattling and doesn't worry that much about them. But to South Korea, they're taken very seriously. Um, so South Korean President Yon Suk-yeol said that in response... South Korea and the U.S. will consider conducting joint exercises using American nuclear weapons. Um, Now, this was denied just after that by the U.S., but America said that it will be working more closely with South Korea regarding the operation of U.S.-owned nuclear assets. So, you know, Kim's talk of expanding his nuclear arsenal, it is being taken very seriously, and it has clearly rattled uh, South Korea in particular. How does uh, this kind of nuclear saber rattling from North Korea fit in with uh, what we expect from Bible prophecy? Back in 2017, Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry was speaking about North Korea. This was, uh, it was at a time of just intense provocations from the North, all kinds of missile tests. But Mr. Flurry said that we should actually, despite all those provocations, we should actually be more focused on Russia and China 
than we are about North Korea. And he said that that's partly because Russia and China are the powers enabling all of North Korea's dangerous actions. And he also explained that his view of all that is based on Bible prophecy. He wrote, The Bible's prophecies show that, in a sense, the North Korean crisis is a massive distraction from the real threat posed by China and Russia. These powerful Asian nations are the only reason North Korea is able to operate so freely. And Bible prophecy shows that they pose a threat many times greater than the one from North Korea. So uh, the prophecies that he referred to there, they're recorded mostly in Ezekiel and Daniel and Revelation and some other books too. And they show that in the near future, Russia and China will lead a massive oriental military bloc. And that bloc could very well include North Korea. Um, and they show that this will be one of the, the main belligerents in a nuclear World War III. Well, if you want uh, more information about that prophecy, you can get our booklet, Nuclear Armageddon is at the Door. We'll link to that in the show notes. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Jacques. Germans are demanding their nation's defense minister resign. To learn why, we'll go back to Richard Palmer. Coming from a country where the prime minister was forced to step down, having held a birthday party after banning all gatherings of more than six people, this seems like a pretty dumb scandal, and uh, it seems hard to see why this is what is making Germans upset. But uh, I guess uh, they have a bit, uh, higher standards, and I think it also just comes after quite a bit of time of uh, uncertainty or, or disappointment. So the German defense minister, Christine uh, Lambrecht, uh, she was made a New Year's Eve video so it was just, I think, considered unprofessional and gauche. Uh, there were lots of, um, you know, there's a war going on in Ukraine. There was lots of violence all across Germany. And uh, this was just a, a homemade video about how wonderful everything has been. Uh, lots of people across Germany really did not like it. And uh, Spiegel Online asked on January the 2nd, how many embarrassments, mistakes and omissions can a member of the traffic light government allow himself before Olaf Scholz loses patience? So it's led to this big uh, outpouring across all the newspapers calling for somebody much more competent to be managing Germany's military. We've long been forecasting that Germany will become more militaristic, will step up militarily, will call for a strong leader. We've seen all of those trends in 2022. In this new story, you see all of those trends continuing into 2023. And uh, our booklet, Germany and the Holy Roman Empire, will really help show exactly why we make those prophecies, where they're grounded in the Bible. And then uh, we have an article just covering this latest story on our website at the moment. Germany calls for a new defense minister. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Palmer. Egypt's currency is rapidly sinking in value. This is causing a lot of economic trouble in this volatile country. To learn about this, we'll go back to Mihailo Zekic. Yes. So Egypt is a country that doesn't make the news from the Middle East as much as some of the other ones. Uh, but that doesn't mean it isn't important and we shouldn't be watching it. It has over 100 million people. It used to be considered the uh, leader of the Arab world. And this former leader of the Arab world has started to have a, a pretty worthless currency. On Wednesday, the Egyptian pound dropped to a record low. Uh, as of now, you can get uh, – or $1 would be worth 26 Egyptian pounds. 
to put that into perspective, in 2018, it was about 18 pounds to the dollar. And and as recently as last year, as the beginning of last year, it was worth about 16 pounds to the dollar. But since uh, uh, since 2022, later in the year, since the war in Ukraine has happened, the currency has had a free fall with no end in sight. And that's not the only problem that Egypt's having. Because of the Ukraine war, um, foreign backers are pulling their foreign currencies out of Egypt to the point now where the country has a shortage of U.S. dollars. Now, this might not seem that big of a deal in Egypt, but in order to buy and sell goods internationally, you need an internationally recognized currency that's accepted for trade. The U.S. dollar is the main one. And at this point, there's so few dollars in Egypt that there's a backlog of billions of dollars worth of goods just languishing in Egyptian ports because buyers in Egypt don't actually have dollars to claim the goods and bring them into Egypt. Egypt is the big, world's biggest importer of wheat. As I mentioned, it has a population of over 100 million people. This is no small issue. We're not talking about luxury goods or, or not just luxury goods, at least. We're talking about things as basic as bread, as food. And in a country with such a big population and, as recent history shows, in such a volatile country and in such a volatile part of the world in general, this is a trend we can't afford to ignore. Yeah, what uh, what can we expect to uh, occur from this? Just looking at Bible prophecy, this is definitely, as you said, a country that we've watched very closely because of how uh, prominently it factors into some really critical end-time prophecies. Well, on this show, we often go to Daniel chapter 11, verses 40 to 44, to talk about the modern Middle East. It talks about uh, two power blocks, one of them called the King of the North, which is a German-led European Union, and the other one is called the King of the South. And for decades, our editor-in-chief, Mr. Fleury, has identified Iran, the Islamic Republic of Iran, as being the head of that block. But it's not the only country within there. Uh, the rest of the prophecy talks about countries that will be allied with Iran, um, including Libya, Ethiopia, and most critically for our part, Egypt. Egypt, as I mentioned, used to be considered the leader of the Arab world. It's still an influential country there. But Egypt and Iran haven't been on best terms for a long time. There's evidence to suggest that uh, the Iranians organized the assassination of uh, former Egyptian President Anwar Sadat back in the 70s. Um, there was a an uprising that got rid of Sadat's replacement, Hosni Mubarak, that brought in the Muslim Brotherhood, an Islamist group. Things warmed under them, but they were ousted a few years later by the military. And since then, the military has been governing the country, sort of flip-flopping between East and West, but not an Islamist country, close to Israel, etc. And the reason the Muslim Brotherhood left was not because the Egyptian people had a change of heart and wanted away with Islamism. It's because conditions in the country were still bad, and they wanted a change. Fast forward all these years later, not only are things still bad, but they're getting worse and there's no end in sight with things as basic as food and uh, uh, acquiring goods from other countries. So as the currency goes down, as the standard of living goes down, Egypt's uh, the economy is going to get worse. People are going to want change. People are going to want somebody to bring in something different. And this could be the perfect opportunity, or at least leading up to the perfect opportunity, for an Islamist group to take advantage of the situation, claim, proclaim revolution, get rid of the military regime, and start pivoting more closer back to Iran. 
Well, we have an article that uh, explains exactly that prophecy, Iran allying with Egypt. It's a trends article that you can find on thetrumpet.com. We'll link to that in the show notes. Thank you very much, Mr. Zekic. Evidence has emerged that Democrats have been using Catholic NGOs to fund illegal immigration. To learn about this, we'll go back to Andrew Miller. Yeah, now that the Republicans are set to take control of the House of Representatives this month, there could be several uh, upcoming investigations if the Republican Party has the the spine to go through with them. And one of them that actually uh, is pretty interesting uh, is being put forward by Representatives Lance Gooden, Jake Elsey, Tom Tiffany, and Andy Biggs. Uh, which is investigating the role that charities are playing in helping uh, Democrats bring uh, illegal immigrants into the country. Uh, Specifically, on December 14th, they wrote that the growing role NGOs play in fueling the dramatic increase in illegal aliens across the southern border is concerning. Uh, Now, that letter was addressed to Catholic Charities USA, uh, a Lutheran charity, and a Jewish charity. Uh, but the Catholic one really bristled, <laughs> really bristled at the letter, firing back right away that the accusations were fallacious and factually uh, inaccurate. And yet, uh, there have been some other watchdog groups that have gone through uh, basically spending that USA data, which tracks government grants, and found out that the United States Bishops Conference received $67 million in immigrant-related funding from the federal government last year which was their second largest source of revenue. Uh, And then a little further data digging into that has actually found that all Catholic organizations have, they were receiving $212 million per year under the Trump administration. And that's gone up to nearly 600 million per year under Biden. So it's gone up threefold, uh, which is a pretty suspicious number because the amount of uh, illegal immigrants crossing the border has also gone up threefold. And so the money's <laughs> the money's keeping pace with the amount of illegals over the border, uh, really making a strong case that these uh, these Catholic Charities USA uh, and some other NGOs are helping the Democrats resettle illegal immigrants throughout the United States. Uh, that spending analysis is uh, is new data that they can uh, Republicans can use in the investigation if they go through with it. But the idea that the Catholic Church has been helping illegal immigration isn't uh, necessarily new. Uh, the New York Post reported earlier this year that by that even before crossing the border, migrants in Mexico are being handed debit cards loaded with eight hundred dollars a month to enable them to pay for necessities. These gift cards are distributed by non-profit organizations for migration thanks to money provided by the U.S. State Department. Uh, and then that goes on that migrants are often directed to Catholic charities. The, uh, the Catholic Legal Immigration Network is the nation's largest network of nonprofit immigration activists. So there's pretty good you know, the Catholic charities. They're definitely helping Democrats resettle immigrants throughout the nation. That's supposed to be those who are here legally, but just giving the increases in spending It seems almost certain that they're helping the illegal immigrants as well. You wrote an article about this. It's up on the Trumpet site, went up yesterday. And you have uh, an interesting theory uh, as to why the Catholics would actually encourage illegal immigration into the United States from Latin America. Yeah, because I looked into this back in 2016 after... um, 
Well, there was a prominent U.S. bishop about the time Trump was threatening to deport illegal immigration, uh, illegal immigrants when he first came to office, who kind of let the cat out of the bag, where when Trump threatened to start deporting anyone he was illegally, he said, he's like, well, if you deported all illegal immigrants, he's like, we'd lose 10% of our parishioners hmm. in Catholic churches. So, I mean, uh, so apparently he knows that it's like, okay, but one in 10 people in the Catholic church here are not necessarily supposed uh to be here uh and then there was also another demographic institute in vienna that's actually run uh that that's were very pro-catholic that crunched the numbers and said that if they can get illegal immigration to double america will be a catholic majority nation by the end of the century Mm. Uh, and so between those two statements it kind of made it look like they they know that they need this to um to strengthen the Catholic Church in the United States, there's only only about 21% of Americans are Catholics, but um, but the native-born ones are, are leaving the church at a pretty alarming rate. So, I mean, the Catholic Church should be a, a shrinking religion. These days, it seems like the only, the only denominations that are getting stronger are the atheists and the evangelicals. Uh, the Protestant denominations, the Luther, all the mainstream Protestant runs are losing are losing people and the Catholic church would be losing people uh, if it wasn't for the fact that they um, they're bringing them in from South America. So there's definitely a, a political motive for on the part of the Catholic and these Catholic charities uh, for helping, helping the Democrats because it also helps themselves and um, which ties into uh, some prophecies that article gets into more details about that. Uh, uh, we can put why is the Pope meddling in American politics from our editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Flurry, that, um, that'll give more details on that as well. All right. Well, uh, go check out Andrew's article on the website. We thank you for bringing that to us. One final story we will slip in here, a more drama in the British royal family saga. To learn about this, we'll go back to Richard Palmer. Yes, Prince William went for the clavicles. It reminds me a little bit of the uh, <laughs> the Donald Trump accusations where uh, Prince Harry is now saying that his brother made a, a lunge for his neck, ripped off his necklace, shoved him against the floor so badly that he fell against his dog bowl and broke it. Uh, we're getting, uh, I guess, a, a pump, apparently a bookshop in Spain started selling Prince Harry's memoirs a little early, so now all the content has leaked out that fight scene is one of the most dramatic uh there's more in there though where basically one of the big controversial things that prince harry did was dress up as a nazi uh for a fancy dress party apparently he said that's actually all his brother's fault and uh, and his sister-in-law they told him to do it uh there's lots of uh, intimate details of family disagreements in there uh i guess you know very personal things how he and his brother begged his father not to to marry Camilla, uh, and uh, you know, all of these different different disagreements and, and dirty laundry aired in public. Details about himself that was pretty disturbing in there. He talked about how he he kind of contacted a psychic to get in touch with his dead mother, some of his drug taking, uh, this kind of thing. But it's just another pretty outrageous attack against the royal family, maybe too outrageous. He got criticized by a lot of his supporters even for for what he said in here. Uh, But I'd really point you back if you want to learn more to our November, December issue of the Trumpet magazine, especially Mr. Flurry's article, The Queen's Funeral Shows the Power of the Throne. And he really goes through the the spiritual motivations behind all of these attacks that you see on the royal family. 
uh, how they tie into Bible prophecy and uh, you know, what, what really is going on here. All right. Thank you for that, Mr. Palmer. I'm Joel Hilliker, and that's it for today's Trumpet Hour. Email us your thoughts on the program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our panel, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, Mihailo Zekic, and Richard Palmer. And thanks to Parker Campbell for engineering and production. I'll leave you with the words of Benjamin Franklin. They that give up essential liberty to obtain a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. Thanks for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. Listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.